Okay, well, the, the few, the humble. Let's get things rolling this morning. We may end just a little bit early today. So, all right, I gave you a foretaste of this last week. It's quiz time again. So, uh, remember, we are using this, um, this approach to biblical study from grasping God's word um, as, as our approach to reading the text. So grasping God's word prevents to us uh, a five-step process, right, for going to scripture to find meaning and apply it to our lives. So what is step number one? Let me go. Grasping the text in our town, or in its town. Grasp the text in their town. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a picture of a, a biblical kind of town. The big idea here is we want to understand what did the text mean to the original author, to the original audience, okay, right? That's the starting place for us. If we're coming to the text and we are building a principle and an interpretation of it that would be completely foreign to the author or the original audience, then we need to go back and rethink our decisions. Okay, step number two, what's the next thing we do after we understand what the text meant to them? There you go. Right. So we're trying to understand what are the differences between them and us. So this little image of the river shows culture, language, time, situation, right? place, and redemptive history. We have to understand the differences between them and us. Now that we understand what the text meant to them, right? what are some things that the text might have meant to them that it definitely doesn't mean to us today? So we can rule those things out. And then the third step. Crossing the principalizing bridge, right? So now that we know what it meant to them, we understand the differences between them and us. What is the universal principle that transcends culture, language, time, situation, right? And then the fourth step, consulting the biblical map. And what are we doing at this point? Yeah, go for it. Kind of assessing where the truth that we find in the one text um, relates to the truth that we find in all the other texts, the whole narrative of Scripture. Absolutely. Kind of spiral. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're taking the principle that we've pulled out of the text we're, we're viewing right now, and we're holding it against the testimony of the rest of Scripture, right? We believe Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay, so while it may be possible to come up with some sort of a crazy interpretation of one random verse— Right when we hold that up against the rest of the testimony of Scripture, it 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 serves kind of like uh, those guide rails on the highway, right? It keeps us in place. And along with Scripture interpreting Scripture, what else might we want to consult at this point? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the tradition. What is the you know what is the historical theology? How have Christians throughout the last two thousand years interpreted this text as well? Right. Just making sure that we're not out there somewhere crazy. If you are the first person to ever read this text and find this meaning in this text, you probably missed a step somewhere along the way. So we want to go back to step one at that point. And then lastly, right, grasping the text in our town. So now that we understand what it meant to them, the differences between them and us, we've come up with a universal principle. We've held that principle up against the testimony of Scripture and of the history of the church, and it's withstood the test. Then we want to ask, how do we apply this in today's 
world. Excellent. So we're going to keep going back and doing a review every single Sunday as well so that the things that we've learned thus far stick with us. So the first thing that we asked when we met uh, at the very first week together was who was the author and what did we conclude? Jude, yeah, yeah, how about that? So Jude, brother of James, the Bishop of Jerusalem, also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he became a believer in Christ sometime after the resurrection, but before Pentecost, right? And that he was serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee that had been planted by the apostles. Okay, so then the second question we asked was, who was Jude's intended audience? Were they 6th century Britons? They're mostly Jewish Christians, right? Correct. Yeah, so Jewish converts to Christianity, right, uh, who lived in a particular place in the world. Where, where did we identify? Here's a hint. It's the place where Jude was mostly doing ministry. In Galilee, actually, yeah. So first-generation Jewish Christians living in Galilee among the churches that had been planted by the apostles. Okay, so then third, we asked, what is the genre of Jude? Okay, well, is it poetry? No, it's not poetry. Okay, um, is it a gospel narrative? Not that either. So what, what is the genre? So interestingly, yeah, it is a written letter, but it was actually a speech act that was written down, okay? So one of the things that we discovered as we were looking at this is at that particular time in that particular culture, people tended to communicate um, orally, auditorily, right? And so um, Jude's letter is a, a genre that we would call Jewish apocalyptic in terms of its style. This was a genre that was... Um, very popular during a very limited scope of time, particularly in the first century, um, particularly among Palestinian Jews. So Jude is really steeped in the methods of Greek speech rhetoric. He's also very familiar with Jewish midrash and Pesher hermeneutics. We talked about that in a little bit of detail last time. All right, so fourth, what was the date of Jude? When was it written? Was it an early letter? Was it a late letter? Yeah, probably, uh, very possibly one of the very first biblical books written and circulated. Um, so I, I would date it somewhere between 48 and 58 AD. So to give you a, an idea here, this was before any of Paul's letters were uh, likely written and circulating in the church. It was also potentially before any of the gospel letters were circulating around the churches at the time which helps to explain, and we're going to go into this in a little bit more detail today, um, some of the peculiarities of Jude and the uh, reference material that he cites. All right, so this one should be an easy one. Why did Jude write? He tells us right there at the beginning of his letter. Gary, what did you say? No. Anybody, why did he write it? 
Yeah, he, he found that there was a, an issue of false teachers that had crept into the churches in Galilee, and now he's needing to write out of necessity so that the people can understand the difference between the faith that has been handed down by the apostles versus the teaching that's coming from these false teachers. Okay, so some things that Jude has to tell us about his opponents. First of all, he tells us that they were long ago destined for condemnation. Uh, Jude seems to believe that they were the subjects of prophetic condemnation going back to um, First Enoch, right, which is a pseudepigraphal book that was very popular uh, in first century Judea. He writes that they were ungodly people. And this is a phrase that pops up a lot, especially in the Old Testament, right? It's usually given in contrast to the righteous. So Jude is emphasizing, especially for his opponents, their antinomianism, right? Anti being against, nomianism being law. So these people were supposedly throwing away the Mosaic law, throwing away Christian ethics that had been handed down from Jesus to the apostles and from the apostles to the church. Um, He accuses them of perverting grace into sensuality, which most certainly means that they're using grace as a license, right, for engaging in illicit sexual practices. They're doing what Paul tells us not to do in Romans uh, 5 and 6, right? Um, Should I therefore continue sinning that grace may abound? What does Paul say? By no means. Don't do that. That's not Christian. Um, And then fourth, he says that they're denying Jesus Christ. Rather than submitting to his authority, they've become a law unto themselves. Right. So then Jude presents us with three historic examples of how God has responded to such things in the past. Right. So first, he tells us about the unbelieving after the Exodus, which is um, a reference to the events of Numbers 13 and 14. Right? These people who had been taken out of Egypt right, uh, miraculously through the, the work of the Lord, um, and yet their faithlessness, believing neither the power nor the command of God, provoked God's wrath and punishment. And God punished them by saying that none of them would be allowed to enter into the promised land. They spent the next 40 years in the wilderness until that generation had died. The second example he gave us were the fallen angels, which, interestingly, he seems to be referencing this kind of cryptic passage in Genesis 6, which is elaborated in greater detail in 1 Enoch in the chapters 6 through 11. Right? These fallen angels whose rebellion against God by abandoning his creational purposes for themselves and also encouraging others, uh, humanity even, to provoke God's wrath and judgment. And then the third example that he gives us are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire provoked God's wrath and punishment. So there's a theme here, right? Faithlessness, rebellion, sexual immorality, right? What does God do in response to these things? Well, historically, right, it's brought wrath and punishment. Okay, so Jude brings some indictments against his opponents. First of all, he calls them dreamers. Uh, Some translations say relying on dreams, but this is definitely intended by Jude in a pejorative way, right? His opponents seem to be citing some sort of special revelation through their own dreams as a source of final authority for doctrine and ethics, which actually contradict the doctrine and ethics of Scripture 
and the apostolic faith. He says that they defile the flesh. And this phrase appears repeatedly again in First Enoch, which was really, really significant source material for Jude. Right? In First Enoch, right, this defile the flesh phrase describes the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through abominable sexual acts. And Jude is most certainly using it here to further address his opponent's sexual sin. In this, they are like both the fallen angels and the men of Sodom, and Jude expects that God will handle them in the same way that he did in the past. Okay? And then third, he says that they reject authority. So Jude's opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels in that they fail to acknowledge their role in the order of God's creation. Rather than submitting um, to their rightful position, In obedience to God, they subvert his authority and the authoritative teachings of Jesus so that they can go and pursue their own plans. And then fourth, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude's opponents claim to receive divine revelation that explicitly contradicts the divine revelation of the law and the gospel found in the scriptures, found in the apostolic faith that was handed down once for all. They're claiming divine authority to challenge the apostles, the prophets, Moses, and Christ himself. And this leads Jude to a cryptic reference about the archangel Michael. Um, He tells us that Michael contended with the devil over Moses' body. Now, that particular story does not exist in our canon of Scripture, and we're told by ancient sources that it was an account from the pseudepigraphal assumption of Moses, of which no complete manuscripts exist today. So we just have to take their word for it. But his main point here in citing that story is to indicate that even the archangel didn't claim personal authority to bring judgment against the devil, but rather, he said, the Lord rebuke you. So Jude offers a final indictment in a rather poetic form, which we uh, dissected a little bit last week, contrasting his opponent's blindness to the truth of God's word, contrasted against their immersive and indeed animal-like knowledge of all things carnal. So we had a question that came up two weeks ago, uh, and the question was, what do we do with... Jude's citation of extra-canonical literature, things like um, First Enoch, like the Assumption of Moses. Um, later on, we'll see that he uh, is also referencing some uh, rabbinic oral traditions about things as well. Um, and so I wanted to share this article with you. Uh, it's found in Ben Witherington's commentary again, uh, his letters and homilies for Jewish Christians. Um, so let me, let me read that with you. Witherington writes, Jude's use of text like First Enoch and the Assumption of Moses is precisely what placed his book in the doubtful category as scripture in the second century and afterward. I have a critic in the back. That's all right. We must decide several matters. First, is citing apocryphal matter unworthy of scriptural authors? 
The answer must be no. And most scholars with a high view of Scripture will simply point out that God directed or inspired Jude to use the true parts of 1st Enoch. Second, in what sense is 1st Enoch true? Jude does take 1st Enoch to be a record of real historical events. Or could he have used a myth or a legend to drive home a true point? We cannot decide a priori what the biblical authors will do until we see what they actually do. Our view of inspiration must fit the text, not vice versa. A moment's reflection will suggest that it is perfectly possible for a biblical author or character to convey real truth, even about history, but using the vehicle of a fictitious story. Jesus does precisely that with parables. Thus, what genre is first Enoch, and how did you view and use it? Did he see it as history, or myth, or some combination of mythical reflections on history? This becomes even more dramatically important when we're told that the archangel Michael debated Satan over the body of Moses, something that the Old Testament gives no inkling of. At least Jude 6 is based on Genesis 6, 1 through 4, but not so Jude 9. At this point, we can make only some tentative suggestions as to how to deal with this. First, There's no question that first Enoch and the Assumption of Moses contain a lot of mythical and legendary material. Jude held this material in common with his audience. These stories had a moral for Israel. Second, the example in Jude 6 is sandwiched between two clearly historical examples in Jude 5 and Jude 7. This suggests that Jude saw the story of the fallen angels as historical. He handles Genesis 6, 1 through 4 with a restraint unlike its use in 1st Enoch. Jude 9, however, is separated from the first three examples by Jude 8, which may suggest that Jude saw this illustration as different, and that he was now turning to fictitious or legendary examples to condemn the false teachers. A good debater would use all kinds of examples to make his case. Since, however, Jude 11 contains more biblical and historical examples, Cain, Balaam, Korah, it could be that Jude viewed all of the examples alike. The story in Jude 9 is by definition supra-historical, involving two more than human figures, possibly in a non-natural sphere, in which case Jude 9 could not be labeled as historical on any normal terms, though it could be real. While Jude 9 may be viewed by Jude as about a real super-historical event, we cannot rule out the possibility that Jude used a fictitious example simply to make his point about the behavior of the false teachers. Whatever the intention of the inspired author here, we must follow where he leads and not insist that he lead only in ways that we want him to lead. Jude is dependent on 1 Enoch 6-19 through here, especially 1 Enoch 10, where these angels called the Watchers, he calls them Peeping Toms, are bound by the archangel Michael and temporarily placed in darkness under the earth until the day of judgment, when they'll be thrown to Gehenna. It's no surprise that Jude's use of 1st Enoch and other apocryphal material confused the church fathers. For example, the Venerable Bede says, it's not easy to see what part of scripture Jude got this tale from, that we do find something like it in Zechariah. He continues, The book of Enoch, from which this quotation is taken, belongs to the Apocrypha, not because the sayings of the prophet are of no value, 
or because they're false, but because the book which circulates under his name was not really written by him. He's talking about Enoch here. But it was put out by someone else who used his name. For if it were genuine, it would not contain anything contrary to sound doctrine. But as a matter of fact, it includes any number of incredible things about giants who had angels instead of men as fathers and which are clearly lies. Indeed, it was precisely because Jude quotes him that for a long time his letter was rejected by many as uncanonical. Nevertheless, it deserves to be included in the canon because of its author. He's talking about Jude here. It's antiquity and the way in which it has been used, and particularly because this passage which Jude takes from Enoch is not in itself apocryphal or dubious, but rather notable for its clarity with which it testifies to the true light. Again, that was the venerable Bede in his commentary on Jude. Well, before Bede, Tertullian, the church father, seems rather willing to accept First Enoch as scripture, partly because of Jude's own use of it. Tertullian writes, Since Enoch in the same book tells us of our Lord, we must not reject anything at all which genuinely pertains to us. Do we not read that every word of scripture is useful for edification and is divinely inspired? As you very well know, Enoch was later rejected by the Jews for the same reason that prompted them to reject almost everything which prophesied about Christ. It is not at all surprising that they rejected certain scriptures that spoke of him. But we have a witness to Enoch in the epistle of Jude, the apostle. So the debate over whether first Enoch was canonical raged for several centuries. And the final conclusion was negative. Right? So Jerome and his De Viris Illustribus, right? in book four, uh, also the Apostolic Constitutions, in general, the earlier opinion was more favorable. And we've got some sources cited there as well. We may take comfort then from not being alone in trying to puzzle these things out. What the use of such traditions shows surely is that Jude is writing an ad hoc document to a specific Jewish Christian audience conversant with early Jewish material, even some of the more arcane bits of it. He did not envision his discourse falling into our hands these many centuries later. The inclusion of this document in the canon of the New Testament, however, indicates that the church fathers saw it as some enduring and endearing worth, even though it was never included in the early lectionaries. All right, so wanted to share that with you because we did have some questions come up a couple of weeks ago. First, what do we do with Jude's citation of these extra canonical books? And what does that mean uh, in terms of the canonical status of Jude? So we do receive Jude as canon in scripture. There's a couple of different ways that we can deal with those citations. Either we can say that they are absolutely true, or we can say that he's using them for illustrative purposes to convey a deeper truth. Which takes us to the passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at today. Jude is bringing further indictments and examples from the past against his opponents. He writes, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, 
that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Woe to them, right? In the Greek, uai autois. So this phrase shows up all over the place. So uh, at least eight times it appears in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? So first in Numbers 21, 29. Woe to you, O Moab. You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. And again in 1 Samuel 4, 8. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. 1 Kings 13.30 And he laid the body in his own grave, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. We're starting to see a little bit of a semantic range here. Proverbs 23.29 Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Ecclesiastes 10.16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Jeremiah 13.27, I've seen your abominations, your adulteries and nayings, your lewd whorings on the hill of the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will it be before you are made clean? Amos 5.18, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? Is darkness and not light. It appears 14 times in St. Matthew's Gospel. 11.21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Luke has a parallel to this as well. Uh, St. Matthew 18, 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. 23, 13 through 16. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. 23.23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Seeing a theme here. For your tithe, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have without neglecting the others. Another parallel to that one in Luke eleven twenty four. 24. St. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. If you clean the outside of the cup of the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. 2327, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. If you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. 
29, 29 to 30. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Again, a parallel in Luke 11. Uh, Speaking of the abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel, Jesus says, And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. And we have parallels of that in Mark and Luke. Say Matthew 26, 24, The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We have those two uh, occurrences in Mark that we've already read the parallels for. It appears another 15 times in the Gospel according to St. Luke 6, 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did speak to the false prophets. And in St. Luke eleven forty three through 46, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you're like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Luke eleven fifty two. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Seventeen one. He said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It appears once in the epistle of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 16. Paul writes, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And it appears another 14 times in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to read all of these citations since Revelation comes considerably later than Jude. But I do think that it's interesting to see the places where this phrase shows up in Scripture. Okay? Um, Ben Witherington writes in his commentary, Jude 11 is a woe article, not unlike that found often in the Old Testament and in the teachings of Jesus. The word uai appears 31 times in the teaching of Jesus and 14 times in Revelation, but only once, uh, twice elsewhere in the New Testament, here in Jude and also in 1 Corinthians 9.19. This likely implies that Jude saw himself as a true prophet, in distinction from the false teachers who may have seen themselves as persons receiving revelation as well. The aorist verbs reinforce this conclusion, which in turn reinforce what is said in Jude 4. The condemnation of such false teachers was designated long ago. Furthermore, Jude norm, uh, normally introduces oracles by others with a preface. Right, so We've got the example in verse 14 and verse 17. That he does not do so here further indicates that this is a prophetic utterance of Jude himself. All right. So woe to them. Why? Because they are walking in the way of Cain. 
So this is a reference to the events that are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4. And we're going to read that together. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from all the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whosoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujel. And Mahujel fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, and the name of the one, sorry, let's go back. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zilah. Adah bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zilah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Right, so we can see that Cain is not presented favorably by Moses in Genesis 4, but in what particular way does Jude mean the way of Cain? Uh, We've got some possibilities here. First, we know that Cain was the first murderer. 
But nothing in Jude's message indicates that his opponents are in any way physically violent, much less murderous. Uh, Another possibility is anger. Anger as an emotion, however, is ethically neutral, neither good nor evil. Though the reason behind our anger and the way that we respond to our anger may both be good or bad. The Bible tells us that God is angry about sin. We see how Jesus turned over money tables at the temple, which was righteous and good. But we also have examples such as Cain, who became angry and murdered his brother, which is bad. While it's reasonable to assume that the dispute within the churches in Galilee were generating heat, and we do get a sense that that was the case, it probably is not the wholesome of what Judah is implying with the way of Cain. Anger is never a primary emotion. It's always preceded by other emotions that we, in our sin, operating in a broken world, bypass. Anger is less vulnerable and much more powerful. And this leads us to our third possibility, greed and envy. While greed and envy may not be as obvious to contemporary readers of this Genesis account, it is a common theme in the rabbinical interpretive tradition of this passage. So we've got a quote here from Josephus in his Antiquity, Book 1, Chapter 2, Paragraph 1. Josephus writes, But Cain was not only very wicked in other respects, but was wholly intent upon getting. In other words, he was greedy. And he first contrived to plow the ground. Now, Cain brought the fruits of the earth and of his husbandry. But Abel brought milk and the first fruits of his flock. Now, God was more delighted with the latter oblation when he was honored with what grew naturally of its own accord than he was with what was the invention of a covetous man and gotten by forcing the ground. Uh, Elsewhere, Josephus writes, However, Cain did not accept of his punishment in order to amendment. In other words, he didn't repent after God condemned him, but to increase his wickedness. In other words, after God threatened punishment against Cain, rather than repenting, Cain just got even more vile and wicked. For he only aimed to procure everything that was for his own bodily pleasure. He was a greedy man. Though it obliged him to be injurious to his neighbors. So in other words, not only was he greedy, but he stole from other people. He augmented his household substance with much wealth by raping Right? And by violence, he excited his acquaintance to procure pleasures and spoils by robbery and became a great leader of men into wicked courses. And that's significant as well. Not only was he greedy, not only was he a thief, but he encouraged others to do the same. He also introduced a change in the way of simplicity wherein men lived before and was the author of measures and weights, and whereas they lived innocently and generously while they knew nothing of such arts, he changed the world into cunning and craftiness. Philo, right, who writes on the sacrifice of Cain and Abel, he says, here are two accusations against the self-loving man. He's describing Cain again as self-loving. One that he showed his gratitude to God after some days and not at once. In other words, he took his time bringing a sacrifice to God. He enjoyed life. 
the other that he made his offering from the fruits and not from the first fruits, which have a name in one word, the first fruits. So in other words, uh, he's saying that, that Cain, in his greed, took the best of what he had grown from the earth and then later brought what was left over to God right, as a, as a sign of his greediness. First uh, Clement in his epistle writes, And it came to pass while they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. You see, brethren, how greed and envy led to the murder of a brother? Okay, so it's certainly probable that Jude is speaking about anger that is provoked by greed and envy. Enter some more information. So uh, Targum Neophyte, right? It's a document that's supposedly based off of an oral tradition of Genesis translated into Palestinian Aramaic in the first century. It offers some really interesting insight into another possibility of what Jude may have had in mind here. So I'm going to read that to you. And Cain said to Abel, his brother, come, let the two of us go out into the open field. And when the two of them had gone out into the open field, Cain answered and said to Abel, I perceive that the world was not created by mercy and that it is not being conducted according to the fruits of good works and that there is favoritism in judgment. All this is happening after God condemns Cain, right? He's pouting about it and he's talking to his brother. Why was your offering received favorably and my offering was not received favorably from me? Abel answered and said to Cain, I perceive that the world was created by mercy, that it is being conducted according to the fruit of good works. And because my works were better than yours, my offering was received from me favorably, and yours was not received favorably from you. Cain answered and said to Abel, There is no judgment, and there is no judge, and there is no other world. There is no giving of good reward to the just, nor is vengeance exacted of the wicked. Abel answered and said to Cain, There is judgment, there is a judge, and there is another world, and there is a giving of good reward to the just, and vengeance is exacted of the wicked in the world to come. Concerning this matter, the two of them were disputing in the open field. Targum Neophytim. Now from this oral tradition, we can surmise a fourth possible meaning of the way of Cain which fits quite tightly with the picture that Jude has quite vividly painted of his opponents already, that they are challenging the authority of God in order to live according to their own desires and encouraging others to do the same. We do get the sense, even from those previous readings from Josephus and from Philo, that Cain refused to submit to the judgment of God, refused to repent of his sin. And he taught others to join him in his depravity instead of repenting. So I think it's fair to conclude that walking in the way of Cain would be all-inclusive of those options that we've reviewed. Unrighteous anger, greed and envy, rebellion against the authority of God, and enticing others into sin. 
All right, and we're going to end a little bit early today. Next week, we're going to pick up again, looking at Balaam's error and Korah's rebellion. It was just too much information to pack into one class. So if you have kids uh, across the way, feel free to go collect them. It is 1140 right now. If you have questions, I'll hang around for a little while. I'd love to engage with any, any questions that you may have. All right, well, I hope you all have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next Sunday.